welcome everybody to all of our campuses, meeting throughout the Twin Cities today. Way to go. You made it to church. I also want to welcome those of you who are watching online today. It's a great day for all of us here at Eagle Brook and around the world, around the country. In fact, we know live time right now that we have friends from Canada, Norway, even Afghanistan, just to mention a few, who are watching online. So just welcome to all of you who are joining us today through, uh, through this crazy technology. So glad you're with us today. We're on a series called the ground, From the Ground Up. We're looking at how God uses ordinary people like all of us to do extraordinary things in this world. But before I dive in, this is a day, by the way, that we've been planning for and praying for for over a year. Today we begin, we begin broadcasting live online at our 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock services on Sunday and then on demand at 1 p.m. on Sundays we invested a lot of money, put a lot of effort into this to pull this off. And here's the reason we did this, so that we can reach as many people with the good news that God loves them and wants a relationship with them. And we are so grateful to God for what he's doing in our life and throughout our church. So if you know people who don't go to church, I mean, this is, this is an easy front door. Just say, hey, you know, watch online. Just check a service out, eaglebrookchurch.com, and just check an online service. And again, you'll never know what God might do in a person's life. They might connect with that and eventually end up in a church like ours or another church around the country and world. That's why we do what we do. But again, how God uses ordinary people to do ordinary things. If you missed last week, we're looking at the man Nehemiah. He lived about 400 B.C., and the city of Jerusalem at the time was laying in ruins. And when Nehemiah hears about this situation, it just breaks his heart. Now, King Solomon was the one who built the temple and built Jerusalem. And in 1 Kings 5 through 9, you ought to read this sometime, how massive uh, the city and the temple it was. It took 20 years to build, 200,000 workers to build this thing. And it was the envy of the world. Royalty and dignitaries from all over the world traveled to see the temple that Solomon built in the city of Jerusalem. But eventually, Solomon lost his way morally. And he began marrying women from foreign nations. In fact, 1 Kings 11 says it this way, Solomon, Solomon's wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not devoted to the Lord God like his father David had been. And so God tore the kingdom away from Solomon. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, and took the Jews into captivity. 140 years later, though, the Persians invaded the Babylonians, and they freed the Jews, but they really had nowhere to go. Their city had been destroyed, so they scattered throughout Judea, Judea the Middle East, with really no identity as God's holy nation, which brings us to the man, Nehemiah, who was also a Jew, but when they were freed by the Persians, he never made it back to Jerusalem. He stayed in Persia. He found a job, got a job with the Persian king as the king's cupbearer. So Nehemiah really has you know, no skills, no authority. He's just a butler to a foreign king. But one day, he hears about the broken condition of Jerusalem, and it just ruins him. Because, gang, when God wants to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things, God will do three things in your life. He'll break your heart over something. You'll see something and you'll say, why is this happening? And you'll just break your heart. He'll prompt you to pray secondly, and then God will move you into action. And now this week, I'm so glad you're here dialed in. I want to show you four steps Nehemiah took to fix what's been destroyed. I just want to raise a question for everybody. Anything in your life ever been destroyed? 
a relationship, a family situation, maybe a career? Anything been destroyed? We're going to look at how to fix what's been destroyed. While I was preparing this message this week, I came across a little book called Life's Little Destruction Book, and it uses humor to point out how annoying and destructive we all can be to each other at times. And so I want to just read a couple of examples of this. The author starts his book. He says, you want to be a little destructive? Go ahead and be a little obnoxious. Make sucking noises. Be pushy. You want to drive people crazy? Here's how you do it. And then he lists 500 ways that we inject a little destruction into each other's lives. For example, he says, when giving directions, leave out a turn or two. That'll cause a little chaos. You know, don't make up your mind at restaurants. You know anybody like this that does this? When people ask how you are, go into great detail about your gallbladder and kidney stones. That's always a fun conversation. Say like at the end of sentences, like. He continues, tell people they're in your will when they aren't. (laughs) Cut in line. Don't knock. Slurp your soup. That'll drive people nuts. Adjust your underwear in public, okay? Signal left. Turn right, he says. Ask people, I love this one, ask people how they are, but don't wait for a response. Just, you know, walk away. Finally, take forever when telling a story. Don't you hate that? Or someone gets out, hey, I got to show you a picture of my grandkids. It takes them five days to try to find, you know, oh, look at this, oh, look at that. And you're like, come on. Speaking of telling long stories, uh, Mother's Day, my wife and I were over at my sister's house for lunch, and my 86-year-old mom was there, and she's the best mom a son could ever have, still sharp and loving. She's about this tall. But she was telling me a story, and she loves telling me stories, these days especially, because I'm not around a lot around her. And while telling me this story, she forgot someone's name, and that happens quite a bit these days, and she took forever trying to remember this person's name. Finally, I said, Mom, it doesn't matter. Just tell me the story. She looked up at me and said, oh, just shut up and listen. (laughs) My mother telling her pastor, her son, I guess at 86, you can say stuff like that. Just let it rip, man. But the point is, we're all capable, aren't we, of injecting a little destructiveness into each other's lives. But what if it's something major and seemingly beyond repair? Again, the walls of Jerusalem lay in ruins for 200 years, and people thought it would never be rebuilt. But an ordinary cupbearer living 800 miles away believed it could be rebuilt. And so he did it. He, He rolled up his sleeves. And the question is this. How can an ordinary guy with no skills, no resources, rebuild a city in 52 days that had lay in ruins? For 200 years, Pastor Craig Rochelle says it this way. He says, to make a difference in this world, you don't have to be the best. You just have to care deeply to fix something that's beyond repair, whether it's a church or school, family, career, relationship. You don't have to be the best. You just have to care deeply. So what do you care about? What breaks your heart? You know, for me, It's always been people who don't know God. It's always been, for me, that breaks my heart, people who are living without Jesus Christ, without purpose and forgiveness and hope for eternal life. And I don't know why, but I've always been burdened by that. I'm not the best at anything. I have so many flaws and insecurities, you wouldn't believe it. I just care about leading people to Jesus more than anything on the planet. 
So what do you care about? I'm going to show you four steps today Nehemiah took to fix what's been broken and seemingly beyond repair. And the first thing is this. He made sure that God's hand was on his life. Nehemiah had to get permission from his boss, King Artaxerxes, to go rebuild Jerusalem. But, but this king is no friend to the Jews. In fact, he had outlawed any rebuilding of Jerusalem because he said Jerusalem had a long history of revolt against foreign kings. So Nehemiah is actually risking his life to ask the king permission. And in chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, I was very much afraid. By the way, even if God is prompting you to do something and it's the right thing to do, you're going to experience fear. No matter what, no matter what you do, when you step out in boldness, in faith, you're going to be afraid. Nehemiah says, I was scared to death. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I went to the king. He asks permission to go rebuild Jerusalem 800 miles away. And then he asks the king for travel documents, for trees from the king's forest for lumber and troops from the king's army to protect him. And the king gives him the whole thing. I love this statement. And because the gracious hand of God was on me. That's why the king granted my request. Gang, that's what happens when God's hand is on your life. And that comes primarily through prayer. When God's hand is on your life, the king violates his own law. Gives Nehemiah everything he wants, not because the king favors the Jews or is kind-hearted, but because the gracious hand of God was on Nehemiah's life. Occasionally, someone will ask me, Bob, did you ever think you'd be leading a church like this? And my honest answer is never, not in a million years. Never planned it, didn't even want it. I'm an introvert who just likes to hunt, fish, and be left alone. And so when I came to the Twin Cities 26 years ago, all three of my staff quit. So the alone part worked out really, really well, right out of the gate. I mean, I was a gang, I was a nothing pastor of a little church. No one knew me, no one expected anything of me, and that was just fine with me. In fact, to give you a little insight into our family, a couple of weeks ago, I, I bought a used hunting truck and sent a picture of it to my daughter who lives in Columbia, Missouri. And when she saw the picture, she texted back and said, that's a pretty big truck for a bald little man. I'm just a bald little man with a big Adam's apple. Look at this sucker. That's all I got. I mean, so when people ask me if I ever thought I'd be in this situation, I say not in a million years. And then they ask, well, well how did it happen? And, and my honest, honest to God answer is, is simply God's hand must be on us for whatever reason. God looked down from heaven and said, Merritt, you're a nothing pastor and in a little church, but if you stay humble, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use this church to reach thousands of people, not because we're smarter or better than anybody, but for whatever reason, God's gracious hand is on us. In fact, at staff meetings sometimes, a few of us staff will sit around a table, and we'll just shake our heads and marvel at what God has chosen to do, and then somebody will say, why us? Because we know us. And us isn't that good. We disagree and get upset with us a lot. Sometimes we think us is annoying and really stupid. Us isn't that good. It has to be God. And we give all glory to him for whatever he chooses to do. Kyle Eilman is a teaching pastor, a good friend of ours. 
teaching pastor at Southeast Christian in Louisville, Kentucky, fantastic author and teacher. He said, the other day I was at the DMV to renew my driver's license, and I had to take the written test over, which I didn't think would be a problem because I'd been driving for many years. He said, but I stood in line to take this test, flipping through the manual, and I realized I'm going to be lucky to pass this thing. After I took the test, I brought it to the lady, and they grade it right there in front of you, and Kyle says, I'm just sweating. And she's marking, you know, answers that are wrong, one after another, and I'm counting how many. And I realize that if I miss just one more question, I'm going to flunk this test, which would be embarrassing to tell my wife. He said, so I'm praying I'm not going to flunk this thing. The lady gets the very last question, and this is what she does. She looks up at me and says, did you mean to mark the letter B? <laughs> Kyle said, no, I, I didn't mean to mark it there. She said, well, what did you mean to mark? <laughs> he said, I'm just looking down at this. I didn't say a word. And here's what she did. She said, did you mean to mark the letter C? And Kyle said, yes, C. I was going to say C, but then you said it. C is the letter I meant to mark. And she crossed out the B and she marked the letter C. Not because Kyle is smarter or better, because I know Kyle is not that smart. Not because he's smarter or better than anybody, but because the gracious hand of God. I'm telling you, it was on his life. When God's hand is on your life, gang, you can accomplish things that are beyond your ability. So that's the first thing. Second thing, Nehemiah defined his reality. So Nehemiah is going to travel 800 miles, but he doesn't have a car. He doesn't have a plane. He's got a horse. 800 miles on a horse. Now, some of you love horses. I can't stand right. They make my rear end so sore. 800. I can't even imagine what this is going to do to him. Two months it takes. I went to Jerusalem after staying there three days just to recover. I set out during the night inspecting the walls. I didn't tell anybody what God had put in my heart to do. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal wall, examining, keyword, all the walls that had been broken down and destroyed by fire. If we kept reading, it says he inspected every single gate, every broken down wall, every pile of rubble. He went through every part of this city in detail because he had to find out what he was dealing with. How bad is it? What are the facts? Because isn't this true? When you live by faith, it does not mean you ignore reality. Faith and facts always go together. Some people think, oh, I'm just going to live by faith. And they make really dumb decisions. Other people, I'm just going to live my, my life by facts. And they don't allow God into the equation. Faith and facts always go together. When you live by faith, you don't ignore strategic planning. You don't ignore expert advice and being prepared. Behind every faith move we made at this church are hundreds of meetings, poring over numbers, zoning laws, spreadsheets that most people never see. At every executive team meeting, I ask a reality check on four areas, four key areas. Every meeting I ask for these. I want the condition of our finances. I want to see the condition of our staff. Where are the tensions? I want to hear about that. I want to know the condition of our campuses, our six campuses. How are they doing? Growing, stable, what are they doing? And I want to know, you know, what's the status of our, our expansion plans? Every single executive team meeting, finances, staff, 
uh, campuses expansion. Where are we weak? Where are we strong? Because gang, faith and facts always go together. So I'm going to ask you, what's the facts surrounding your personal finances? What are the facts? Are you paying your bills? Are you saving and giving? Or are there gaping holes in your financial wall? If you're a parent, what's the reality concerning your kids? Are they respectful and faith-filled? Or are they defiant, entitled, and rebellious? What's the reality around that? What's the reality in your relationships? Are your relationships good and growing? Or do you burn through one relation after another and assume everybody else is the problem? What are the facts? If the walls are crumbling in some area in your life, you have to face reality and ask, what's the problem here? What's the true condition of my relationships, finances, health, schedule? Because the first step in overcoming anything in life is to define reality. Eight years ago when the economy went south, some of you remember that, my wife and I met with our financial advisor and it was very, very painful. He came to our house actually with the bad news, but he didn't want to show us the actual numbers. Finally, I said, Greg, show us the numbers. Give it to us straight. What did we lose? What do we have left? When he showed us the sheet, our hearts sank. I was 52. My wife and I were 52. We looked at our savings, and this is what I said. I said, we'll never be able to retire on that, will we? He said, at this rate, you won't be able to retire until you're 102. <laughs> I said, that's a problem. But that single sentence woke us up to a new reality. My wife and I were planning on remodeling our kitchen. We put that on hold. We cut all unnecessary spending, and we started an aggressive form of saving that we continue to this day. Eight years later, we're back on track to retire someday. The walls are stronger. And I'm telling you, it all goes back to this single moment when we looked at that sheet and said, we're in trouble. But we turned that around. Nehemiah inspected every part of the wall because he knew in order to fix anything, you have to know what the reality and facts are. Interesting side note, he did this at night. And he didn't tell anybody that he was inspecting the damage because if he just rode into town and said, hey, we're going to rebuild Jerusalem, no one would support it. In fact, the Bible says in verse 12, I didn't tell anybody what God had put, my heart, put in my heart to do because when you want to fix something significant, catch this now, you have to be very careful who you tell because not everybody is going to support your idea to try to fix your marriage, to try to fix your family, to try to fix your career, to try to move in on an issue. Not everybody's going to support it. You have to, be, you have, to have a good plan. You have to think through every issue before you go public. And then, once you have all the facts that you can gather, don't wait until you're 100% sure to move forward because you'll never be 100% sure of anything. I mean, we weren't 100% sure of our marriage you know, Laurie looked at me and I looked at her and, oh man, I don't know, I'm about 95, maybe you're 93, I don't know, but we weren't totally sure. Having kids, are you kidding me? Are you ever sure about having kids? I mean, that's a monumental decision and you're never 100% sure it's going to, it's a crapshoot what's going to happen with kids. Man, they turn out goofy sometimes. Sometimes they're great, but man, I'll tell you what, it, it's, it's never been sure where we're going to live. 
Lori and I weren't sure about that. To do this thing online, church, not sure about that. What campus to build next? No matter how much you define reality, there's rarely 100% certainty about anything. So here's what you got to do. After all the planning and preparation, gang, there comes a moment when you simply say, I've got to move out into the unknown. I got to take this step. I have enough facts. Shoot for about 70% certainty. Because if you wait for 100% on anything, you'll never do anything. There's no risk. There's no stepping into faith. There's no taking a risk. Don't shoot for 100%, 70%, pull the trigger. Nehemiah gathered as many facts as he could, and then he said, hey, it's time. I'm about 70% sure this is going to work. Not sure it will, but it's time to rebuild the walls. And all the people said, let's go. We're on board. Here we go. Third thing is this. Get ready for opposition. God had led Nehemiah to build the walls. You would think that if God was leading him, there wouldn't be any opposition. It would be smooth sailing. But look at this verse. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Ever been ridiculed for doing the right thing? Ever been criticized for doing the right thing? Gang, this happens all the time. Some of you may struggle with addiction, so you go to AA. You're going to try to do something about it. You go to Quest 180 here in our church, but your buddies begin to mock you for being soft or being no more fun. Or your marriage may be in trouble, so you seek counseling, but a friend tells you, just give up on it. It's not worth fighting for. Or you start going to church and make a commitment to pursue a relationship with God, but your extended family members belittle you. They say you're being overly religious. I can tell you that every single campus we built, every good thing we try to do, there's been opposition from community groups, city councils, even well-meaning church members. Here's what I've learned. One of the signs that you're doing the right thing is you're going to get criticized for it. You ought to expect it evaluate it, look for the element of truth in the criticism, but then move forward because anytime you're led by God to do the right thing, you are going to get opposition. Count on it. It's a sign that God is leading you to do the right thing. Finally, Nehemiah uses the power of a team. So just to sum, sum up here, he left his job in Persia got free lumber from the king's forest, got protection from the king's armor, army, traveled 800 miles on a horse, inspected every part of the city wall, and he was so fired up about this that everybody else said, we're in. They said, if you're crazy enough to risk your life, ride on a horse 800 miles, we'll do this with you. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, the high priest and all his fellow priests went to... This would blow people's mind because... Clergy didn't do manual labor in those days. This would just have blown them away. The priests are diving in. Uziel, the goldsmith, repaired the next section of the wall. And Hananiah, the perfume maker. What do perfume makers know about building walls? Absolutely nothing. But they're going to dive in and help. Shalom, a district ruler, a higher-up guy, repaired the next section of the wall with the help of who? His daughters. Everybody involved wrapping up 
you know, diving and rolling up their sleeves, diving in. Nehemiah goes on to list hundreds of merchants, leaders, governors, and commoners all working together to rebuild Jerusalem. And in 52 days, they pulled it off. Been laying in ruins for 200 years. Because if you're going to do something great, it takes a great team. Some of you know that every May, I go on a Boundary Water canoe trip in northern Minnesota with three other guys. It's the most painful thing I do all year. So we drive up to Ely, northern Minnesota, at 4 o'clock in the morning, load our canoes with 400 pounds of gear, and we shove off for six hours of sheer punishment. It's just the worst. It's, it's the worst six hours of my year going in, six hours coming back, five hours of constant paddling, 20 strokes on one side, 20 strokes, back and forth, back and forth, monotonous, hard, back aches, doesn't feel good. We haul all of our gear and canoes over nine portages, and I could never do this alone, not in a million years. I'm completely dependent on three other guys who know what it takes to go 17 miles through rivers, mud, embankments, deep currents for two days of fishing. We don't do a fly-in trip to Canada. That'd be too easy. Uh, we pack in, now catch this, we pack in 28 dozen minnows in oxygen bags filled with water, 28 dozen minnows. We get eaten alive by gnats. It's like the Lord of the Flies, just clouds of insects surrounding us. We have to wear head nets. We endure storms, sleep on the ground, cook our meals on an open fire, and we just beat ourselves senseless for four days. And so people sometimes will say, well, Bob, why do you do this? What's wrong with you? And the short answer is simply walleyes. We, we, we love fishing walleyes. We can't stand the thought of all these big fish just up in this special place that we go to catch in northern Minnesota and Canada. We, we just know they're waiting for us, and so we've got to go. But on a deeper level, this trip builds something into us that we can't get any other way. Those four days, really, for me personally, are a test of my strength. It's a test of my character. Uh, it, it forces me to exceed my limits and push through pain. So when I face a hard challenge at work or at home, it's like, well, I can handle that. But the thing that makes this trip possible is our team. None of us could do it alone. Uh, none of us could do it if we weren't in shape and didn't appreciate hard work. When we hit a portage, we each grab a pack, we flip the canoes over our heads, we take off, we blow past every group on the trail, and then we never stop paddling because we've got 17 miles to cover. And we do it as a team. I'll show you a couple of our teammates here. Because a team can get to places and conquer challenges that one person can never get to. And I just want to raise a question for all of you. Who's on your team? You know, if you're married, it could be your spouse who's a great teammate. It could be your parents. It could be siblings. It could be some friends. But who's on your team? If you're married, who's on your marriage team praying for you, advising you, and helping you keep your marriage strong? Who's on your spiritual development team? You know, those people who challenge you spiritually and sometimes will quote a verse to you or text a verse to you and just ask you how you're doing spiritually. Who's on your spiritual development team? Who's on your work team? 
who's really good and, and helping you excel at work, who's on your friendship team, because here's what we all know. The quality of your team will absolutely determine the quality of your life. King, I'm telling you, the quality of your friends, the quality of your friends will absolutely determine the quality of your life. Your team will be the difference between whether you succeed in life or whether you fail. And what our team of four does at the end of every trip is we celebrate at the Ely Dairy Queen. Uh, we walk in with a funky smell of smoke, fish guts, body odor, but nobody even flinches at the Ely Dairy Queen. The owner, Paul, great guy, greets us warmly like he's expecting us. And this year, when I tried to pay, he whispered to the cashier, this one's on me. No wonder I love this guy. I just love this guy. When I sat down and bit into my charbroiled bacon double cheeseburger, the ketchup and mustard squirt out the, because I'm a, I'm a ketchup guy. I'm a mustard and ketchup guy. Just squirt out the sides and it drips down my chin, all over my fingers and shirt. And I was reminded that there is a God and he is good. To allow us to appreciate this taste, God didn't have to give us taste, but he gave us taste. And then as we left, Paul sent us out the door with four free Dilly bars, and it was like heaven. It's a celebration I love every single year. But here's what I want to end with. This is so key. There is no celebration without a challenge. There's no celebrating. Unless, you, unless you've overcome a challenge. So some of you, you're just trying to skate through life and get as much comfort and ease and just avoid challenge. There's no celebration without a challenge. So roll up your sleeves, dive in, and there's no overcoming a challenge without a great team. So again, who's on your team helping you overcome challenges? When Nehemiah's team rebuilt Jerusalem in 52 days, they had a huge celebration. In fact, toward the end of the chapter, it says this, go and celebrate, he says, with a feast of choice foods and drinks and share gifts of dilly bars with everybody. Because there's no celebration without a challenge. And there's no overcoming a challenge without a team. Four steps, this is for all of us, four steps that Nehemiah took to fix something that was badly broken. He made sure God's hand was on him primarily through prayer. Remember last week, confessing his sins. God, put your hand on me. Second, he defined his reality. What's broken? How bad is it? Third, he used the power of a team. And on the backside, there was a huge celebration. And I know what some of you are thinking. We're going to have free dilly bars as we walk out. No, we're not. We didn't do that. We're not. We did that with Kemp's just a few, few months ago. But if you're ever in Ely, stop by. Say hi to Paul. Buy your meal. Don't expect a freebie. But you never know. God's hand might fall on you too. Hey, it's been great to be with you today online, all over the country and world. God bless all of you, praying for you. All of us here in the Twin Cities, across our campuses, God's doing an amazing work. Let's all stand for closing prayer and be on our way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for how you choose to use ordinary people. Every single person standing here watching online at our campuses, every single person, we're all ordinary. 
that God, you'll use us to do extraordinary things. Put your hand on us. God, help us to live in that delicate balance between faith and facts. God, when opposition comes our way, I pray that we'll look at it, evaluate it, but follow you no matter what. And then, God, I pray that we'll gather a great team because some of us here don't have a team and we're alone. So, God, I just pray that you'll help all of us gather those people in our lives who will help us become better. You don't have to go alone. God, you love us too much for that. Thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness that I need every single day, and we all do. Thank you that you believe in us. Thank you for what you're doing through this church and the church around the world. All churches, God. We love you, came to worship you today. Bless us now as we leave. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day, everybody. God bless all of you. She came today. Yep.